0: I'm Earl Fontenelle. This is The Schwepp, The Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast. Today we're speaking with Gretchen Radam-Schills, professor in the Department of Liberal Studies at Notre Dame University in Indiana, who holds sim- three simultaneous jobs as professor of classics, philosophy, and theology. Exactly the kind of person we like to speak to <laughs> on this podcast. Uh, Gretchen, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us about the great calcidius my pleasure so calcidius this is a, not exactly a name to conjure with for most people but a very very important character in the 4th mm-hmm. century can you introduce him the way you would introduce him to you know so uh, people who never heard of him before and what we can say about his life etc you know
1: Yeah. Well, the answer to that is very short because we know next to nothing apart from the fact that he wrote this partial translation of the Tamias. It's from about 33c to 53c and partial commentary. No, sorry, the translation is up to 53c and the commentary starts in Tamias 33c. Um, It's a very influential text, but we know nothing about the author uh, even the date is very is very contested, and if you want, that's the primary reason why I wanted to write a monograph that would start from well. What can we tell about his position in the cultural landscape uh, based on the text itself, based on the commentary itself? What is his authorial voice? What is the purpose of the commentary? And then and then work from that and uh that's actually the results of, of that were were a bit surprising you know even even to me as well i can maybe su- summarize it by saying that he'd always been grouped with um the uh christian latin neoplatonists that sort of you know with Marius victorinus with with Augustum. But I think one of my main conclusions is that he really doesn't belong with that group at all. His Christian identity is far from obvious. Um, Right. And I'm one of the the scholars who's adopted the minimalist position, namely by saying that, you know, an assumption that he was Christian doesn't really, it doesn't make any difference for the commentary. What we can tell that his interlocutor is a Christian, and that's why he, he sometimes alludes to Christian views in the second person. And that uh you know he also cites the Hebrews, but of course we know that people like Nomenius and Porphyry also had a strong interest in the Hebrew tradition because you know of what they call the wisdom traditions, and he he uses he uses some file of alexandria uh but that's about it, uh, and he also he holds views that are frankly incompatible uh, if if we think about them the later, if we put him the later we put them in the fourth century, the more of an enigma it becomes because he doesn't have the doctrine of creation out of nothing, because matter is with God. Mm-hmm. He doesn't allude to any debates on the Trinity, even though he has a threefold structure of, of the divine. Uh, if you compare that to Mar- Marius Victorinus, the differences are, are very, very, very striking, I think. So you may know this, but the, the kind of the dominant thesis in scholarship, was developed as the person who edited the text. You know, he's mm. still a fabulous edition of the text kind of wanted to put him in the circle of Ambrose and Augustine in Milan at the end of the 4th century. And again, if you start from the actual features of the commentary itself, that makes no sense. I mean, there we really have no reason uh, to put him in that circle. And that may mean also that he is actually earlier. He might be from the early 4th century and maybe, you know, the addressee is Osius, uh, and we know Osius of Cordoba, who was um, who was a major player in the Council of Nicaea. It might have been Osius of Cordoba, after all, and it might have been something that this Osius commissioned when he was traveling, so not necessarily in Spain. Um, so we, we are sort of reopening. We are reopening possibilities once we see how limited the basis is for assuming that he belonged to that circle of Latin Christian neoplatonism can i I I stop you there for a
0: second and just um Mm -hmm. try to summarize for for people who haven't heard any of these names osius is a guy that we know was a bishop in spain in earlier Mm -hmm. fourth century like the 320s 330s so that might Mm -hmm. date uh calcidius earlier because calcidius is addressing this someone called osius in his translation commentary so he's saying osius here's my translation commentary on the timaeus in latin enjoy a lot hinges on that what osse- the identity of this osseous and we can't pin it down right for sure, so
1: it, that... yeah, that's my right. but I think it's fairly clear that the addressee is a Christian, yeah, and then once we can we can sort of get rid of this hypothesis of the Milan circle mm-hmm. um, and on the basis of the the techno feature the text itself, you know the the earlier date is not excluded uh it at least becomes possible again that it might have been somebody like Ossis of Cordoba who would have been visible enough and prominent enough. You know, both to commission this kind of text and to be a kind of worthy addressee, you right. know, if you're an ambitious writer, you want you want to dedicate it to somebody who's who's making a difference. yeah, It's perceived as important. Yeah.
0: so this text has been received as a Christian in the fourth century, sort of post- Nicaea roughly speaking a a trinitarian orthodox christian even though he's not very trinitarian but that's okay he doesn't have to you don't have to go on about the trinity to be trinitarian
1: Mm -hmm. necessarily
0: um sort of adapting plato or absorbing plato's timaeus myth specifically the creation myth the the cosmological myth the cosmogonical Mm -hmm. myth Mm -hmm. into a western christian Lexicon saying like this is something mm-hmm. we can work with as as Western Christians, we don't need the Atlantis story. we'll just leave that out right, which mm-hmm, is why mm-hmm. the Atlantis story is going to sort of disappear in the Latin West for a long time. but you're saying well if we if we pull back a- again and reassess this we 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 can't really be that sure that that's what's going on. He's mm-hmm, definitely mm-hmm. Latin writer, he's definitely writing it sometime mm-hmm. in the fourth century. I think that's kind of agreed
1: mm-hmm. um.
0: But his own philosophical religious agenda isn't certain in your view.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, and it, it's that, it's certainly not dominated by concerns that are central to Christianity. Um, and one of the things that comes out, too, is that for him, Plato is the authority figure. Plato is the pinnacle of truth. And you could say, well, that's the result of him writing a commentary on the timeus But if you read other people who are very keen on Greek philosophy, they usually have a disclaimer in there at some point. But yes, of course, you know, scripture and revelation was um, are superior in terms of truth. And Calcadius never makes that point. It never goes beyond Plato as, for him, Plato is the beginning in the end um, of, of when it when comes to truth claims. I mean, when it comes to the Trinity. I mean, yes, he has a threefold view of the Divine, that the Holy Spirit is nowhere in sight. Um, you know, it really doesn't map. People like Eusebius would claim that, you know, there is a sort of Trinitarian view of Plato that you can map onto the Holy Trinity, mutatis mutandis, but calcidius doesn't even make that move. So what happened? How could he have been dubbed a Christian? Because that would then become an interesting question. And yeah, you're right. And one of the ways in which he became very influential is that, of course, we're dealing at a period in late antiquity when the knowledge of Greek philosophy and Greek period is waning.
0: In the the West, we should emphasize. yeah. Yeah.
1: And through some accidents of history, this text becomes, for quite a number of centuries, Plato. Right. right. I mean, we have some Latin translations of other texts, but snippets of it, but really this text. So to the point that people would, would use this text to talk about Plato and Confidius, you know, completely disappears behind the figure of Plato. But what also happens, of course, for example, is very important for the school of Chartres in the 12th century. We know this. But then we have to think about their methods of reading. Uh, you know, if you look at uh, Bernard of Chartres, They take selections of texts and then they fit them back into different contexts. So that's how, in a way, Calcidius becomes quote unquote Christianized, because he gets they take parts of the text and they connect it with other ideas, and then it ends up looking more Christian than in fact it was. Now another really important nuance is when we're talking about Neoplatonism at the end in that period, at the end of antiquity. The Platonism that we find in Calcadius, and and John Dillon had already pointed this out, is actually, it goes back to a large extent to a kind of Platonism that is pre-Plotinus. So um, it's that period, 1st century BC, 2nd, the first two centuries AD, where Platonism becomes interested in developing a system of Plato's thought, but it's very much in flux and so it's it's in an older form of Platonism, which in itself is also very interesting. How come that somebody at the end of the fourth century or somewhere in the fourth century um goes back to this to this earlier form this earlier form of Platonism, which is less schematized, less complex less um you know the fewer mediating actors um there is much less of an emphasis on the apophatic tradition uh, for example um and that might have to do with the purpose of the commentary, which I can talk about if you want.
0: I'd love that, but let's um let's maybe back up. We've already we've already dipped into Nachleben, which is usually yeah, yeah. something I try to leave till the end, but um, yeah, it flows so naturally from what you're saying that we've already got some uh school of chartre in the mix. But the idea is that he's writing a kind of Platonism that doesn't remind people so much of Plotinus and those who came after him most the you know people we've been talking about on the podcast but back to what's often called middle Platonism people like Numenius of Apamea um, the Plutarchs the Alcinoises of the the early centuries of the Roman Empire Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: a simpler time
1: (laughs) yes maybe
0: (laughs) he's harking back to that stuff and the question would be why, because from our view of, as scholars looking at what survives, we get the picture that in this period, there's a real kind of hegemony that, you know, everyone who's doing Platonist philosophy is deeply influenced by Plotinus. Therefore, they are deeply metaphysical. They're, their concerns are metaphysics. And if they're influenced by Porphyry and especially Iamblichus and beyond, they're also concerned with with a very systematizing, complex metaphysics with lots of triads and you know mm-hmm. structures in the immaterial realms and we don't see this in calcidius. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So that that is a puzzle. I don't know what you think of this but I feel like the the council of cowardice is probably the council of sensible scholarship which is to say the most of what was written in antiquity in platonism especially in the latin world assuming he's he reads latin maybe as readily as greek or more readily we don't know what there was it might be that he just stumbled upon a bit of numenius and a bit of this and a bit maybe some plutarch and whatever and that that was how he formed his uh, philosophical um, yeah. chops we just don't and of know of course
1: again yeah it also means that platonism is a lot more diverse yeah. than we that we have a tendency to assume but um as i was saying earlier it could also have something to do with the purpose of the commentary because okay. it's it's very clear that i mean he has to be careful not to insult his addressee, but it's very clear that his addressee is not really well-versed in philosophy and doesn't know Greek all that well, so the addressee needs help. And he's using, and this is a very bold move, and that's why there is, there is, I think, an anti-esoteric streak to the work. And um, that's not just a suspicion, because one of the polemical uh, moments in the commentary occurs very early on, where he's precisely railing and ranting against those Platonists who do not want to share their knowledge, who keep their knowledge to themselves. Right. So by contrast, what he's going to do, he's going to try to quote-unquote translate, not just in the translation, but also in the commentary, try to make this, this legacy more accessible to somebody who is not part of the inner circles. And what he then ends up doing is he uses the Tamias, as a venue to present an overview of what he calls theoretical philosophy, starting with... I mean, this is actually the account... This is a, a division that is preserved in Alcinius 2, whom you've mentioned. He starts with mathematics, then we go to natural philosophy topics pertaining to natural philosophy, and we end with theology, or the account of the first principle, so it's not just God, but also matter. And that pretty much maps onto uh, the structure... Of the, of the commentary. And then the commentary is thematic, so it uses it the it for the topics that it addresses and gives an overview of what other people have thought on this subject and why Plato's view is superior to all those other views. So it really, it's almost like a crash course because it also has these overviews of what other people thought. It's a crash course on those topics. Um, you know, give somebody who reads this access to a lot of material. And moreover, it's possible that it's not complete, that, you know, there was the second installment, because as I said, it stops. And for those of us who don't have the techniques, you know, on, on our mind all the time, it stops right after the, uh, the final discussion of the receptacle. You know, mm. the disorderly motion and receptacle, and right before the actual geometrical construction of the elements. That's, yeah. that's where the commentary stops. That's, um, that's
0: a very interesting place to stop. You know, one of the things that struck me looking at Platonist reception of the Timaeus, and every, every Platonist goes to, goes to the cosmogonical myth in the Timaeus for some aspect of their metaphysics, um, some mm-hmm. aspect of their physics. Uh, mm-hmm. science scientific approach to the cosmos but very few people seem to make use of plato's elaborate geometric atoms uh story proclus addresses it and we'll get to that in the podcast but he says that plato's being allegorical it's not it's not really mm-hmm. what plato's saying he's not really saying mm-hmm. that there's little tiny triangles right um so that's an interesting one it's, it seems to have been one that people in general just for whatever reason decided mm nah we can't use that. We can use the Demiurge and it's going the to be... The construction
1: yeah. of the world soul. We yep. can use the, the world soul. We can yeah. use all
0: the astral stuff, all the, the geocentric cosmology. We can use the mm-hmm. the stars as gods, as sentient beings. Um, all of that stuff we can use and we, we must use. We will use and we must mm-hmm. use. But the, the geometric atoms, meh.
1: But, of course, there too, we have to go back to an argument you yourself made earlier, we have a lot of missing links in the commentary yeah. tradition of the Tamias. Um And, you know, the question of Calcidious sources is also a very, very difficult one. So the traditional view was that he used, that he was a mediocre dabbler who just used a couple of primary sources, um, and porphyry would have loomed very large in that. But porphyry is very, very difficult to pin down what exactly his views were. Mm. Uh, because we have we have a lot of contradictory contradictory evidence and again in contrast to that i wanted to focus on well what is the red thread that actually runs through the commentary is there is it just a you know a fairly loose compilation under these themes or does he actually have an interpretation of the time and i think he does it's remarkably um it, you know it resurfaces at regular points okay well let's let's
0: point. talk about that if that's okay um mm-hmm. if, if mm-hmm. we've turned we've turned from who this guy was, we don't really know, but we know he lived in the 4th century. He's addressing a Christian, for sure. He's writing in a Christian milieu. He might be a Christian, he might not. If he is, he's not, he's not a rage. His point is certainly not to proselytize Christianity through this work, right? Mm-hmm. His point mm-hmm. is to take the wisdom of Plato, which is supreme, mm-hmm. and put it out there for Latin-speaking audience because they need to know it. And these philosophers mm-hmm. have been jealously hoarding the mm-hmm. wisdom to themselves. And that's not cool. Right. Yeah. So let's talk about this book. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's so many questions we could ask about this. But I guess the the overarching question is, he takes Plato and translates him into Latin. So he's already he's making philosophic choices there, because he's gonna have to decide, for example, this, this mysterious word, "chora" in Greek, the space or place or something that's going to become associated with matter very early on aristotle already makes the association but like how is he going to translate that how does matter mm-hmm. all these all these philosophic choices he's making through his translation and then mm-hmm. i guess a, a question following on that is not just the translation but the commentary what mm-hmm. does he try to do with plato what story is he telling mm-hmm. using plato's timaeus
1: mm-hmm. yeah well you know again there are two parts to your question uh, so i mean famously calcidius came up with the word silva which is almost li- um, very literal, like wood, form for matter. And actually there is another passage where he uses, less, less famous, but uses the word that would amount to kindling, you know, the kindling of evil. Right. Um, so that's a very famous one. But yeah, one it that might be perhaps, worth pointing
0: out to listeners that the word that Aristotle coins, as far as we know, for matter, hyle also means wood. So he's, he's following on the Greek tradition. He's sort of calcing into Latin. From this Greek yes, tradition that's already yes. there, yes, and so
1: that's one of the ways in which we can know that Greek was actually the dominant language for him, uh, because there 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 are also lots of Graecisms in his Latin. Okay. So it's mm. uh, it's the dominant it's the dominant language. So it's a hyper-literal calk, and uh, because in, by then in Latin we already had the word materia, which he could have used, but he tends to reserve materia for what we call secondary matter, things like elements, things that. Are uh, quote unquote material, but are already something in their own right. where Silva, he uh, reserves for this um, highly contested. But Calchius clearly thinks it's their notion of prime matter. Got it. Uh, you know this this the substrate that has has no features has no features whatsoever. Um, so that's one of the linguistic distinctions he makes. Another one that is less well known but very very important for the commentary. Um, Instead, he inserts the words providence, providentia, in the translation when the Greek does not have it. So, in fact, Plato uses pornoia. Uh, He talks once about the pornoia of the demiurge, and I think he mentions it again, as George Boystone's pointed out, when he talks about the younger gods. But it's not a key technical term for him, whereas Calcidius will insert it left and right and at really crucial, crucial points, crucial junctions in the Tamias. So, for example, if you have the famous distinction between the works of reason and the works of necessity, which is that transition from the cosmogony to the receptacle, well, Calcadius will call that the works of providence. Mm. So, and then, not surprisingly, providence is one of the main themes that runs throughout the commentary, how that God's providence, in fact, does encompass all of reality, then how are we going to account for evil? How do we account for human freedom? That is one of the one of the uh, central motifs in his interpretation of the is Provenance looms front, center and back. I mean, it's everywhere.
0: Right. So that is, on the one hand, could be seen as a very typically late antique concern, especially when the human freedom question comes in, because that's just not a question right. people were asking in Plato's time mm-hmm. uh, in those terms. Um, and very Christian, because Christians mm-hmm. are very concerned with freedom, not only human freedom, but God's freedom. God wills, he wants mm-hmm. to do stuff mm-hmm. and he makes mm-hmm. choices and all this sort of thing, which to, to Plato or Plotinus is just absurd. Like, that, what are, mm-hmm. what are you talking about? But on the other hand, providence looms very large in Middle Platonism more generally. Yes, um, so and in
1: Stoicism. And, and the debate about providence and freedom goes back, of course, to... Um, to the earlier period, the stoic notion of providence and the problems it poses for human freedom.
0: So we have uh, already some interesting philosophic choices that are showing up in the translation, the choice of Latin terms. And then expanding to, to go to the second part of my question, how would you summarize his his sort of goals? What, what, what are the red threads running through Calcidius's commentary? You know, what is his philosophical point or points?
1: Yeah, yeah. so um, I'll, I'll, you know, it's like if you ask an expert to summarize their views, you know, <laughs> it's always a bit of a challenge. It's but, dangerous. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll try. Um, so he clearly still, this is also Plato, platonist, he has a kind of triadic view of God. Uh, the forms, the platonic forms are the thoughts of God. Mm-hmm. And then we have the principle matter. Okay, so I've described his, his view as a minimal dualism meaning there still are two principles. Matter is independent of the divine principle and coeval with it. And, you know, as, as you and your, a number of your listeners may know, that's a view that was also rejected, not just by Christianity, but also by Platonism from Plotinus onwards, for, for whom uh, matter is the lowest emanation of the highest principle, but therefore not entirely independent, right? It's not something that just exists apart from from the divine so it is an independent principle it is one of the two principles but it's not evil um, it's uh, neutral mm. so he really wants to use this idea that it's comp- which he actually borrows from the stoics that it's completely amenable to the divine ordering activity uh, you know it has potentiality for body but it's not yet a body, therefore potentiality is not evil as such. And I mean, even more, it desires the order. Uh, not only is it not evil, there is also positive slant that It desires the order um, that is imposed on it by, by the demiurge. Uh, and he uses there, Calcidius uses a famous passage from Aristotle's physics, where Aristotle uh, raises that possibility. But it's almost in an aside, and it's, it's in a passage that very much reads like like a comment on Plato's Tamias, but somehow it became was lifted out and became a very very central passage for the, for that view. So that's that's at the basic structure of reality. Now, if you look on the on the side of the divine, right? So we have a God who is above being, but probably what he means by that is that not above being altogether, but it's not like any specific beings. And then we have a second god who is the mind or the will of the first god, and that's the Demiurge. But sometimes you get a sense that when Calcadius talks about the Demiurge, it actually means the first and the second god together.
0: Right, okay.
1: And then we have the world soul. Got it. But, but the gap between the first two gods and the world soul is bigger than between the first first and the second god. So that's his triadic structure of the divine. What he shares with Plutarch and a number of other Middle Platonists authors is the idea that there is something, there's there is there's a soul principle that is more primordial than the world soul. So um, so you have the divine part of the system. And then if you look at, you know, the other primordial bits in reality, there is a lower soul, which is the principle of life for Calcidius, which is not the world soul. so the world soul is composed out of this lower soul and a purely, purely noetic soul. Um, Okay. Which, by the way, we have a hard time fitting into then, into a triadic uh, scheme. That's where things get, do get a little bit slippery. But, you know, we can also say it's just a noose, which would then be, you know, the second god. But very interestingly, and this is one of the views where he departs from Amenius, that's one way in which he's less dualist than Amenius. It's a view that he explicitly rejects. Unlike Plato and, and um, Numenius, Carcigius uh, does not consider this lower vital soul as the principle of evil. Right? It is primarily the principle of life, and what that then amounts to, I think, in a final analysis, is that on the level and the structure of reality, we don't have a fact of evil. Right? So the world is good through and through, and that's not just a Christian view. But I'd like to remind people that that's also the Stoic view. Mm. Right? But then evil really occurs in the choices of human beings. So the only evil is moral evil, uh, and then of course, Dick is going to argue against the Stoics that that requires genuine freedom, or that their their view of, of fate, you know, doesn't work uh, because yeah. So that's it in a nutshell.
0: Right, fascinating stuff. Thank you for laying it out so clearly. You you did a very good job of summarizing, by the way. Despite the fact Thank that you. you are an expert on this material, um, I'd love to just follow the thread of Numenius for a moment. Um, mm-hmm. He Numenius and Porphyry, it seems to me, are the two names that come up the most in discussions of uh, Calcidius as possible influences. Taking Numenius first, is he an influence on Calcidius? Is he reading Numenius? <sighs>
1: Yes, he's a very important influence on, I mean, on Calcadius and I think he's more important than Porphyry, but there is a complication with Porphyry that we might want to talk about. Yeah. So what we have to distinguish here is the ideas that were influential on uh, Calcadius and the sources through which he got access to these ideas, because that's part of the challenge. Uh, Numenius is clearly very important for him, and he mentions him. and he, he, The view of Numenius is the last view that he discusses in his overview of other positions. And usually the one that comes last is the best one. Right. So he has a very high view of Numenius. And you can also see that there are features of Numenius thinking that he sort of used to structure the commentary, like the distinction between, you know, two types of soul. Mm. Or the interest in the Hebrews, I, can, I think I can actually prove that he's reading a translation uh, from Origins. Uh, opening line is maybe not Genesis. Uh, that he reads it through Numenius and not the other way around. Right. So he's you know, not reading Numenius to Origin, but reading Origen's translation to Numenius. So Numenius is clearly very, very important. But even there, this is also one of the things that I try to to highlight. He takes he he departs from Numenius ultimately he takes a stance so this is a commentator who is i mean it's kind of ironic given how unknown he is a commentator has a very strong consciousness of his own authorial voice and he you know he really intervenes you know this is and you know it's like he establishes a direct connection between him and plato and of course what he says plato says is the only right interpretation of plato and then plato of course is you know it's right but yeah, there's no doubt that Numenius is very important for the commentary in that they share the interest in the Hebrews, in the Hebrew tradition, which is something, I mean, Hebrews is what Calcidius calls it. So there are lots of, of common interests with Numenius. Numenius is clearly very important. But again, there too, Calcidius asserts his independence.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That also, the the whole idea that there might be a doctrine of the Trinity hiding within uh, Calcidius's interpretation—you can find it there if you want—but it, in terms of authorial intent, Numenius just seems the for this this tripartite god. I mean, Numenius is the man for that. That's his signature. Exactly,
1: doctrine. exactly. And this is—it's—I uh, think it's Dots who already pointed this out in an older article. You know that. When it comes to triadic structures of the divine, the, the line between pre-Plotinian views and Plotinian views is not as strong as people, you know, wanted to draw it. I mean, there are already uh, strongly developed triadic views of the divine in pre-Plotinian Platonism.
0: Mm. And in the Chaldean oracles, arguably. So you, and in the Chaldean oracles, So in a more popular yeah. religious Platonist worldview.
1: Exactly, world exactly.
0: Okay, so that's Numenius. He's there. He's being read. It, I wish Calcidius had translated loads of him into Latin. We would have some more. But uh, also,
1: yeah, he's, uh, he's actually, he, um, the passage on matter is not attested in any other source.
0: Okay, so we so do have that,
1: a... That, that, that chunk of Numenius is very important, yeah.
0: Porphyry. Now, Porphyry, just to... We've talked about him in the podcast, of course. He is, for whatever reason... Incredibly popular going into late antiquity, people love him. Even Christians love him, even though he wrote this anti-Christian attack. uh, And some Christians absolutely excoriate the name of Porphyry. Still, everyone wants him. They want him for his introductory commentaries on Aristotle's logic. They want him for his metaphysics. They so everyone's reading Porphyry. He's he seems to be like a bestseller. But as you say, his work. not univocal although there there have been some univocal readings of porphyry published recently where people are trying to see him as a consistent philosopher throughout his whole career i tend toward the older view that no he really does change his mind about stuff as as time goes on what role does porphyry's work play in calcidius and there
1: i did the landscape has actually shifted a bit even since the publication of my monograph so um, Wassink really thought, and a number of people in the, you know, scholars like Stephen Gersh too, thought that Porphyry was the principal source, well, not necessarily for the whole commentary, but definitely for the part beyond mathematics. And there are some parallels. Now, I sort of went maybe to the other extreme and came up with what I called a very minimalist minimalist view um, of the influence of Porphyry. And again, in order to get there, you have to sort of see what other people use porphyry for as you just summarized and what use calcadius might have made of him and so as a result of that i mean what i looked at was porphyry's own commentary on the tamius which of course we only have fragments of and you know it's it's very clear to me that the gist and the purpose of that commentary is radically different from calcadius's undertaking so it cannot have been that commentary by porphyry on the time that you know it's just the, the whole scopos the whole what they focus on what they actually say is is too different for them but of course that's probably not the only thing porphyry wrote about the time you know he may have had off and on he may have had you know lecture courses for all we know so okay but at least we have to be very careful with the commentary on the time but, what I did notice in the hypothesis that they left open is that he might have used porphyry more as a source for later for other views, so um, the technical term for that is a doxographer you know that there are parts there were writings of porphyry that were more giving overviews of what other people thought right. and very middle platonist material that too, so you know we have porphyry in. Uh, in one text, saying that you know Plato had a triadic view of reality of the of, of gods, the thoughts of God, and matter, which is of course much simpler than what Porphyry and Plotinus themselves themselves between quotation marks eventually go to develop. Right, and that relates to my third point. When there are parallels, whenever we have, I know I know this is a bit technical, but I hope you'll see in a minute why this matters. Whenever we do have parallels there and we have of porphyry we have different reports on one in the same view calcadius always mirrors the simpler of the two like in some Mm -hmm. cases we have things that tested of porphyry that are simpler and sound more middle platonist and on the same topic we have another source that gives a more elaborate elaborate structure calcadius always the parallels are always with the simpler uh, versions okay now the plot thickens you may or you may or may not have heard of this. So that was my minimalist thesis, and I was, you know, kind of very proud of myself. You know, here we have a tradition of Latin Platonism, which Porphyry did not play, you know, such a central role, right? I mean, this was a bit against also the the Pierre Hadot uh, thesis, yeah. uh, you know, in his earlier work on Marius Victorinus. Lo and behold, the book is barely published, or you have this text that was edited, that was preserved in Syriac version, yes. it's called On the Principles and Matter, which is uh, published by Yuri Arsanov uh, is in Vienna. And there is a whole section of that text that is paralleled in calculus, the treatise on matter. I mean, we're not just talking about a couple of lines. We're talking about a whole sequence of chapters. Fascinating. Okay. I did not know that connection. So that's right. So the case of porphyry is reopened. Mm. And, but again, I mean, I don't think I have to, you know, this is a classic scholar sort of covering their back. I don't think I have to eat crow completely because again, (laughs) it's, it's an early. It's again the earlier form of Platonism, right? I yeah. mean, it it has the view that matter is the principle next to God, which you know.
0: Absolutely, and and Porphyry is quoting in that fragment of and all Porfiry's people, quoting.
1: Plutarch
0: and Atticus, who yes, you and, would and never and so think Porphyry exactly. would even bother quoting those people. Uh,
1: exactly. So so it's the doxographical,
0: Porphyry,
1: mm. right? To go back to that earlier term. It's the Porphyry who who you know it's part of a work where he really does the overview He's of other
0: surveying people's. the opinions that other people surveying. this is very common in the uh, commentary tradition generally so yeah yes
1: but it's more it's more extensive because of course i looked at when i did this i looked at um surveys in preserved writings of porphyry and they tended to be a bit more minimal but these are actually you know these have long quotes and these yeah. have so these are more more elaborate um and again, it might be some kind of preliminary, right? Where it's it's part of the. Oh, what what term are we going to use? The background material that they used. Um, it's now the question is: Is this part of the commentary in the is? I don't think it's part of the commentary of the Talmud that we have, but it might be part. I had a conversation with Harold Tarrant also about this. It might be part of you know the file, so to speak, Porphyry right. had on the is, yes. It might come from the treaties on Matter, because he is in some sources. He's, it might have been the preliminary uh, part of a Treatise on Matter. Uh, but anyway, this just goes to show, um, and that's why I, I gave you all those details. Yeah. Um, yes, it's Porphyry, but it's not the same Porphyry that we find in other sources um, of, of, that, of that period in antiquity.
0: Right. Well, it, it also goes to show just how, well, two things, I think. One, how important genre is. For, so so um, if we didn't have that little fragmentary work by Porphyry, we would think if you'd said, did Porphyry ever write a, an expose of the theory of matter using the Middle Platonist Atticus's thought? You'd say, no, <laughs> of course not. Nah, like that's, right. Porphyry would never s- be yeah. not yeah. interested in that at all. But it turns yeah. out he did. And that could have something to do with genre. Right, like in this kind of writing, I'm going to cite these sorts of yeah. authors. In this sort of, in this comment, in this large commentary in the Timaeus, I'm going to cite this cadre of authors. And in this little uh, piece, I'm not going to cite anyone at all. I'm just going to write aphorisms. Yeah, it's and, also
1: Severus is also. It's a very interesting information about Severus. Which we don't, which we don't have. Another yes, yeah, I mean, Severus, yeah.
0: another middle Platonist that we don't know much about.
1: We um, don't know much. And Alexander Mikhailovsky is really doing. Also, fantastic work with that uh, with that new new evidence, a scholar in France. So, but it's exciting, right? I mean, that's how scholarship moves forward. And and but it, for me, it deepens. It also deepens the mystery of Caucasian sources, and it deepens the mystery of porphyry. So, mm. um, um, so now we can start writing papers about how this view really is somehow compatible with the view we ultimately ended up developing, or maybe it's the protreptic one, or whatever. Um, but we only have the text. And of course, the debate about whether porphyry is the author or whether the entire text needs to be attributed to porphyry or is itself a compilation, that debate has only just started. But right. This is this is good stuff, right? This is why scholarship matters. Absolutely.
0: Um, and why yeah. uh, people who know Syriac and other useful languages matter to those of us yes. who just yes, know Greek and exactly.
1: Latin. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so Arzanov, that's a really, that's a major a major moment in the history of, of scholarship. Yeah.
0: Speaking of major moments in the history of scholarship, it seems to me that the publication and dissemination of Calcidius's, uh commentary, translation and commentary, is a major moment in the history of Platonism in a number of ways. And this brings us into reception or nachleben, as we scholars like to call it. You know, how does this stone that... Calcidius dropped into the pool of late antique writings on philosophy and religion, how do the ripples spread into the future? Mm-hmm. And, you know, most obviously, in the Latin speaking, uh, Western Europe, um, I wonder if you could just kind of summarize this to, as a kind of a spoiler for the, <laughs> the podcast going forward. You've mentioned the School of Chartres yeah. already, which is very, very important, and probably could do with mm-hmm. saying a bit more about, but that, there's more than mm-hmm. there's more than just that, I think.
1: Yeah, I can also refer your readers to a very helpful, illuminating article by Paul Dutton D U T T O N, and that's published in that Plato's Timaeus as Cultural Icon. Oh, yeah, uh, which is that collection of essays that they edited on the reception, on the oh. reception history of Timaeus. And again, there's a lot more work that needs to be done there. But um, and I, of course, I was I I went a bit in the other direction because. Calchides for such a long time was just basically read as a source book, or read by medievalists, and so not really by people working on ancient philosophy, which is one of the, you know, strange, strange um, accidents of scholarship. Um, so I really very much wanted to go back to what is this text in its own right, as distinct from from its reception. But even there, it is a bit of a mystery, as sometimes happens. You know, we think. Uh, The the accidents that happen in reception history, Um, you know, there are texts that initially seem to disappear or not have to have a major impact and that only resurface later. So, for instance, you know, Augustine doesn't appear to use Calcidius. Uh, the first person that we have attested is um, is Favonius Ulogius. He's a minor character, but he's a pu- uh, was he was a pupil of Augustine. He's a rhetorician operating in in Carthage, um, and then you know there is a kind of trickle to some to some bits of Macrobius, um, and uh, but it's it's very tenuous initially, right? And and then we have a gap. And then we we have to go back to our earliest manuscripts, and we do see it played a major role, for example, in the school of Chartres. And of course, the story goes, then we have the rediscovery of the Greek sources, so Calcides becomes a bit less important, but, as Dutton also shows, you know, Ficino, Marcellus Ficino, in the Renaissance period, uh, knows Calcides well, Calcides is important for him, um, and this is a story that that I think needs to be written more or examined more, what happens in the early modern period? You know, how does the christian calcadius uh continue to influence uh views and again dutton has done this on the basis of the manuscripts the availability of manuscripts but there's a lot more work uh, i would say there that that needs to be done
0: so on a a basic level even taking this back taking this really back to basics there is a picture that plato is going to be lost in western europe unlike aristotle who's unprecedented popularity rise in late antiquity means that a lot of his stuff will be translated into Latin um, or, or be accessible in Latin Ooh. via, for example, Latin translation of Porphyry's introduction to his logic and be transmitted so that the whole Christian philosophical tradition in the Latin speaking world will have access to a lot of Aristotle. And then they're going to get more Aristotle through Arabic, through translating from Arabic into Latin. But the Arabic tradition has a, a major paucity of Plato as well Mm -hmm. which is something we'll talk Mm -hmm. about shortly on the podcast so they're not getting Plato they're getting Aristotle they're getting other classical stuff from these various roots but they're not getting Plato but the one piece of Plato that they have is Calcidius
1: and there are some Latin translations I think of passages of the Phaedo that are are also circulating and of course you know we don't quite know how much uh, Boethius did manage to translate and how much of that because his his undertaking was to translate both Plato and Aristotle into Latin, you know. And again, it's a shortage of sources that that sort of makes us guess what happens. But it's yeah, it's it's very clear that you know the school of Charter, Plato there, and it's Calcidius is is really really important. And you know he gets pulled into the debate. Although I haven't quite figured out how they get from Calcidius to this view because it's not in Calcidius as I as I alluded. You know, he gets pulled into the debate about whether the world's soul is the equivalent of the Holy Spirit or can mm. be seen as the equivalent of the Holy Spirit. But that's not in Calcinius. I mean, not even remotely, but you can see how he gets pulled into that Christian debate. Um, and Ambalar takes part in it too, I think. Um, you know, can we, and you know, it sort of continues to be floating around until it sort of gets condemned as an absolutely heretical idea. So, you know, there it does get pulled into, into those kind of debates. But I find this absolutely fascinating. Then the question for me is, how did they manage to read Calcilius in this way? Because if you go at it, to the, and that's why I was saying earlier, part of the answer is that, you know, the glossai tradition, the compiling of excerpts with commentaries, where, you, where something gets taken out of its original context. And I think that's also what happened with Calcilius. It was the Plato they had access to. And they, they, for some reason, they were interested really in using these features of Platonism. Yeah. And they actually made, okay, you say, make him sound more Christian than he actually was. And part of it is has to do with this practice of excerpting.
0: Yeah. I think also it's important to realize, for that for explaining how that process worked in later medieval Christianity in Western right. Europe, that while Plato's works hardly survived, his reputation was massive. So, and right. the same in, in the Arab world. He's the you know absolute father of esoteric wisdom in the medieval Islamicate tradition. Even though they're not reading him, so yeah. uh, they're reading Iamblichus, they're reading Porphyry, they're reading uh, Proclus, right. Plotinus. They don't read him directly. Yeah, no, they don't read him. So, as a Christian in the High Middle Ages, gathering together everything you have of you mm-hmm. know sort of prestigious ancient material, which is if we think our classical record is full of gaps, theirs really was, because they didn't have anything in Greek at all. They just exactly, had Latin. Exactly, um, exactly. Yeah. You're trying to bring all the prestigious authorities to bear on Christianity in a philosophically right. literate way. Right. So you've Since got Aristotle, kind of... but you yeah. want to bring Plato in if you can. And here's Calcidius. So we got to bring Calcidius in. So we got to somehow find a way whereby we can find the Holy Trinity in... Plato's Timaeus.
1: So it's basically the creation of an authoritative uh, wisdom tradition, in which in this case, Christianity ends up being the pinnacle of truth. But it's in a way, it goes back to, to uh, what we see. And again, George Boyd Stones has done great work on this, um, you know, this, this sort of the creation of the wisdom tradition in Porphyry and in Numenius. But then people like Clement of Alexandria now, of course, go back to the way of the way early period. Do something very similar, but this time Christianity becomes the pinnacle of the wisdom tradition, and then we also get the idea that the Greeks actually borrowed it from, um, you know, from from scripture. That scripture yeah. was original, and the Greeks were just, you know, we, just which we it. find
0: already in Philo, and then in Clement. Which as we well.
1: already find, and Numenius, you know, actually makes a very interesting claim um, uh, about Plato being the atticizing Moses. Yeah. So. Does that mean that Moses is the original one? I mean, what does that actually mean, right? Um, so in that sense, they stand in a venerable tradition. But as you yourself point out, the circumstances, this sort of historical circumstances, made it much harder to do this. And therefore, they, really, they didn't really have a whole lot of Plato to go by. And, uh, and that's also why Calcadius comes to stand for Plato. That and again pointed this out. They refer to the commentary of Kafkides and they say Plato says, you know, it's just like he just becomes this almost transparent conduit, which you know I've just pointed out into this podcast is anything but a transparent right. conduit. He has a very strong authorial voice, uh, but he becomes Plato.
0: Yeah, so that is hugely relevant for the podcast going forward for the story of Western esotericism in the far West in the actual Latin speaking realm. Because not just Plato, but specifically Plato's creation account, and it's Mm -hmm. actually very, it's very worthwhile stopping and pausing for a moment and looking at the layers of authorial voice here. We've got Plato's Timaeus, he's putting this myth into the mouth of someone named Timaeus. Mm -hmm. So it's not even Plato, it's the voice of Mm -hmm. this Locrian guy called Timaeus, right? Timaeus speaks, Mm -hmm. that gets uh, commented on by Middle Platonists, Neoplatonists, and then we have Calcidius... Processing all that kind of interpretational material, translating it into Latin, putting a massive slant on it of his own, also either making it Christian, either Christianizing it or at least making it acceptable for a Christian person that he's writing for. Mm-hmm. And then that work is going to go on to become the voice of Plato. It's many, mm-hmm. many stages removed from Plato's voice and Plato's voice wasn't even there in the first place because he was writing.
1: <laughs> yes, except that of course there was a the theory, there was also the theory in antiquity that Tamius does speak for Plato, you know, they thought of course, about this themselves. That, yeah. But it gives us the connection with the Pythagorean tradition too, because, you know, everybody else starts talking about Tamius, the Pythagorean, although all we have is at least from Locri, but that's the connection that, that they establish. Um, and, uh, just calls, mm. um, yeah. calls him a Pythagorean, actually. Everyone
0: in antiquity calls him a Pythagorean, except Procosm once. Pythagorean. I think Proclus refers to him as Platonikos, but yeah, aside yeah, from yeah, that, yeah. he's always it's, Numenius, yeah. the Pythagorean.
1: But you know, I, again, I, I want to push back a little because this is part of the mystery of the text. He doesn't Christianize the Tamius the, the at all, as far as I'm concerned. We're so used to seeing a polemic, you know. Um, again, this is the slant that we have in the sources. We sort of used to seeing a rather acerbic polemic between um you know the Christians and non-Christian tradition, um and you know especially in the fourth century. And from that point of view, Calkidas comes across as ironic. I mean he doesn't hint at any kind of conflict, but he doesn't Christianize the Tamiz. I think what he's trying to do is trying to convince his addressee and through that Christians that the Tamiz is really worth looking at. Mm. Uh now this is pure speculation, but we might, you know, every once in a while we're allowed to do that. Please um, do, please do. Why why was the uh commentary left? If it was a left uncomplete, maybe his recipient wasn't all too happy by what he read and actually felt that no, 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 this is really not compatible with Christianism, with Christianity. Uh, maybe that's you know, again, we don't know whether it's incomplete, and if it is incomplete, we don't know why. But maybe that 's one of the reasons that you know Christians would sort of shake their head at this and go no no this is, this is not going to work mm. um, in that sense you know the the attempt uh fails in that specific context, but not in the later context. but for that, they actually have to Christianize Calcidius, uh make him sound more christian than than if you look at the at the original text. But regardless of that, it's a phenomenal what I call a phenomenal moment of a cultural transfer. You know, it's like one of these bottlenecks through which the legacy of antiquity was passed on to, you know, to the early Middle Ages and the High Middle Ages. I mean, it's it's like, you know, if that text hadn't been commissioned. Uh, I mean, the, the, the intellectual history would have looked very, very differently. And the other thing that I like to point out is that what people are not always aware of, uh, this has to do with the status of the Tamias. If uh, Eusebius is a reliable source, the Tamias got connected, linked to Genesis, as early as the 2nd century BC. Mm. Not AD, BC, by, by, by a Jewish-Greek exegete called Aristobulos. So already from then, you have the two cosmogonical... cosmogonical, I try to avoid the word creation when I talk about the Timaeus because that's, you know, trying not to use the Christian term. The two major cosmogonical narratives, Genesis and the Timaeus, traveling together.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And again, that, of course, will secure the status, the status of the Timaeus.
0: Yeah. In the history of the West, in the intellectual history of the West, I feel like you'd be hard-pressed to say which is the more important... Narrative of of the let's call it the creation of the cosmos because as soon as people are reading Genesis in a literate way with exposure to Mediterranean culture they immediately go to the Timaeus as the interpretive lens the more scientific approach to the same thing exactly so so Genesis is being read through the Timaeus uh, Mm -hmm. and the Timaeus as you've shown it will be read through the lens of Genesis. In many mm-hmm. com- ways as well. So it's almost like they become one text or or two commentaries. Yeah, they become
1: on the same merged. Thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. I should, we have to understand, yeah. I should
0: just point out Isn't here it? that um, there is a, a, a minority, but um, perhaps worth considering, school of thought. Recently, mm-hmm. Russell Gmerkin very recently came out with a book called Plato's Timaeus and the Biblical Creation Accounts. And he is what's known as a minimalist reader of the Bible evidence. And his uh, thesis is that. The book of Genesis is actually based on uh Plato's Timaeus.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I've read I've seen that. Yeah, I've seen that, which um, is yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's certainly a hypothesis that we need to take seriously. Mm. I think it's yeah.
0: it's one of those ones where more evidence, please. Like give us give us yeah, one, yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. one piece of crucial exactly. evidence. Yeah, 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 yeah. And from, for now
1: it's just a hypothesis, but it's like we need to we need to keep an open mind about this precisely also in light of evidence that might emerge, you know, mm. that we might not have at this point in time. Yeah. But uh yeah, regardless of what one makes of that hypothesis, it's very clear that the two the two, you know, merged very much um in the in the tradition of interpretation. Now there's one final point is one on this this very one very bold, possibly shocking move that Calcadius does make with the Tamius uh post in post Yamlicus. So if you look at the curriculum for philosophy that Jamlichus well, it probably had been, you know, it was in the making before him, but he sort of finalizes it like the philosophical curriculum right. um, for for Platonists. The two texts that are the pinnacle that really come at the end are the Timaeus and the Parmenides. Mm. So the Timaeus is on nature and, and the Parmenides is, you know, being or, or ontology or beyond being. Metaphysics, that's right. And Calcadius uses the Tamis for an introductory course. So this 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 jewel of what that is then considered, you know, advanced Platonism, probably going back to more of the esoteric dimension here, gets like thrown to, you know, I wouldn't quite say the pigs, but it gets yeah, thrown yeah. to, you know, the doors get opened up. And but on the other hand, that is attested. In earlier, like that's a test in in, um, in earlier accounts of a Platonic curriculum. You know that you could actually use the Timaeus as a kind of, um, you know, not just the Alcibiades one, but that you could use the Timaeus as a kind of introductory course. But I think for contemporary, if, that's again what I mean with the anti-esoteric anti-esoteric uh, yeah. tendency of the text. I mean to use the Timaeus, you know, the, it's like ooh, it I might have it. been rather rather. Uh, nervous or resistant to that idea.
0: Mm. Well, maybe because he's writing for a Christian audience that fundamentally doesn't care about what Yamblichus thinks. Yes. About the reading order and the mysteries of Plato and the mystagogy of the the higher truths. Exactly,
1: exactly. And it is, you know, it's just like, it's trying to get, um, I think, on board with you know, how, how impressive Plato really is. And this this, this 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 philosopher is really worth looking into and really getting to know better uh, for, for Christians as well. But yeah.
0: Right. Gretchen, thank you so much for speaking with us about Calcidius. I think you, you did a great job of dipping into the more technical stuff that scholars are interested in while hopefully making it accessible to non-scholars, especially non-scholars who've listened to the podcast up till now. So the whole cast of I, characters I so. we've been mentioning you know, Numenius, Porphyry, we know who those guys are, basically, we know who Eusebius is, so we can we can make sense of all this, and you've pointed forward to uh, a really, really fascinating Nachleben, which will, of course, recur in the history of Western esotericism, just as soon as you mention the name Marsilio Ficino, it's already, okay, we're in the heart of, you know, Western esotericism, and we need to take his sources very seriously, but also movements like the, the School of Chartres, and other you know christian platonisms of the later medieval period that are incredibly important and do reintroduce that kind of esoteric well often called mystical aspect into uh, christianity via people like Calcidius. whatever Calcidius's mm. intentions were these are all very right. important for our story so thanks again thanks very much oh
1: thanks for having me my pleasure
0: and uh stay esoteric
1: <laughs> i'll were... do my best